you want the Cinnabon more than you want the salad, not because you think it's healthier. It's just emotionally more resonant in that moment. The nuts and bolts of personal finance are quite easy. It's just managing that behavior, and that's what the laws of wealth is all about. You are listening to the Redefining Wealth podcast with Patrice Washington. In today's episode, I sit down with behavioral finance expert, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and he says when it comes to investing, sometimes the best thing you can do is nothing at all. Hey there, this is Patrice from patricewashington.com where we chase purpose, not money. Welcome back to another episode of Redefining Wealth. We have another fantastic interview for you today. I'm really excited for you to get into this one um, because the nerd in me, (laughs) the nerd in me loves talking about behavioral finance. I have always been fascinated by what makes us do what we do with our money, even when we know it's not the right thing to do. Mm -mm -mm. And I love all of the research and the stats that are out there. And I love bringing people on who can really help us underscore this and who has the background to really drive it home. And what I love about my guest today, Dr. Daniel Crosby, is that he is so down to earth. And I love people who can make this stuff not intimidating. As you know, here at Redefining Wealth, wealth is not just about money and material possessions. We believe that wealth is about well-being and really looking at all the different areas of your life, which are what my six pillars of wealth are really based on. And so anytime I can just find men and women who can really underscore that, it just makes me so happy, especially because just a few weeks ago, we were talking about surrendering too. If you didn't hear that episode, it's really good. It's a solo episode called You Can't Be Selective With Your Surrender. And so what I love about what Daniel and I get to talk about in this episode, it's basically surrendering and letting go and stop trying to manipulate and force results. Um, So you're going to hear more more about that. If you are new here, welcome. I'm going to tell you now you want to subscribe. I'm just saying you want to subscribe. And for all of you who continue to download, to play, to send me messages on Instagram, Seek Wisdom PCW, (laughs) or comment over at patricewashington.com, I just want you to know that I truly appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. And this episode, I think is really going to be a game changer. And so I want to hear about it. So Let's dig in. And then I really want to hear your thoughts on Dr. Daniel Crosby and some of the things that we cover in this episode. So without further ado, Dr. Crosby is at the forefront of behavioralizing finance, educated at Brigham Young and Emory Universities. He's a psychologist, behavioral finance expert, and asset manager who applies his study of market psychology to everything from financial product design to security selection. In his latest book, The Laws of Wealth, which I read, uh, he really breaks down real and actionable guidance, and it really helps you get an understanding for practical applications that we can all use to help us with our finances. His ideas have appeared in the Huffington Post, and he has columns at wealthmanagement.com and Investment News. Daniel was named one of the 12 thinkers to watch by Monster.com, a financial blogger you should be reading by AARP, and in the top 40 under 40 by Investment News. Check out this outstanding interview with Dr. Daniel Crosby. Thank you for being on the Redefining Wealth podcast, Daniel. It is my pleasure. It's great to be here. I'm so glad to have you. I'm super excited about this conversation. I've been looking forward to it for quite a while, but as you know, I've been on and off some type of illness. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with the beginning of 2018. I'm trying not to make this uh, any indicator of what the entire year will be like, but I have definitely been sick um, quite a bit. And so that postponed us a little bit, but I am super excited to have you. Um, now we met 
some years ago, right? At FinCon? Okay, I remember it much better than you. So we met, we met at FinCon. We met at FinCon and I was so impressed by you. And I said, she's going to do big things and you absolutely have. So congratulations. And congratulations oh, to wow. me on being a great judge of character, I think. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. No, I totally remember your face. I just don't remember like what happened, like how we actually connected. I'm notorious, though, for more so chatting with people in the hallways. I do much better with that than sitting <laughs> sitting inside of all the sessions. I'm just one of those people. So I'm always making my rounds, but I'm so glad that we did connect. And thank you so much for sending me the laws of wealth. I think it's phenomenal. And I've really been looking forward to this conversation because you have such a way in the book of just making it plain. I think one of the reasons that a lot of people shy away from conversations on investing is that they just feel like it's too over their head. And what I loved is your just common sense stories or just the examples that you use that made everything so practical. So I can't wait um, to unpack this. So I want to start with one of the first things that stood out to me is you said the journey of the behavioral investor requires a bit of the head, but far more of the heart and stomach. And it puts me in the mind of one of Dave Ramsey's quotes where he says, you know, personal finance is 20% head knowledge and 80% behavior. And I think For a lot of us, you know, it's more about behavior than we actually understand. So I really want you to kind of break down for us what behavioral investing actually is. Well, you're exactly right. Dave's exactly right. Because I tell people you can understand everything you need to know about personal finance and investing. If you take a week and, you know, read a handful of good books, the book knowledge part of that, you'll be squared away for life. You'll have that sort of foundational knowledge. But it's actually applying those things and setting systems and processes in place that make it actually happen. I mean, it's kind of like dieting. It's not that the, you know, the science of dieting is so tough. It's just that when you're walking through an airport and you've had a long trip, you know, you want the Cinnabon more than you want the salad, not because you think it's healthier. It's just emotionally more resonant in that moment. So the nuts and bolts of personal finance are quite easy. It's just managing that behavior. And that's what the laws of wealth is all about. Yeah, I love the example that you said even about um, there was a cookie example, right? And you were talking about how someone might want to go on a diet and then they just repeat this mantra like, I will not eat a cookie. I will not eat a cookie. I will not eat a cookie. And it basically breaks down to the fact, though, that like repeating that message of self-denial really doesn't work. It doesn't necessarily help. Can you kind of talk about that? Because I've said for years in my work that words are powerful, right? And what we verbalize, we tend to magnify or magnetize. We tend to make it bigger for ourselves, which is one of the reasons I've always been not a fan of the term emergency fund. And I know it's, you know, well used and that's what people say, but I've always for myself personally, and then I started to teach my audiences about the term opportunity fund because it always motivated me. Like the thought of, wow, I'm saving towards some opportunity that I actually want whatever that is, whether it was to invest in a business or just go on a vacation or, you know, I don't know, save up for a purse, whatever. It motivated me much more than thinking of a rainy day or some day that no one wants. No one wants to think about the roof caving in or their transmission going out or any of the other things that people would kind of try to scare us into. And I always felt like if I save the money and that thing that I don't actually want to happen happens, I'm still prepared because I have the money. The biggest thing was getting in the habit of saving, not necessarily, you know, always what the outcome is because life happens. And so when you gave that cookie example, I really connected to that, to that whole thing about it's just, it's a lot more effective to focus on what you want, right? Than what you don't want. You know, well, you give an interesting example about the power of words. So President Obama worked very closely with a lot of behavioral scientists like myself throughout his whole administration. And, you know, one of the things that they found, and of course, you know, late in the Bush presidency, the W. Bush presidency and early in the Obama presidency, of course, you know, that's the second worst economic disaster of of all time in in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. And so they're looking to try and make things better. And what the Bushes had done, what the Bush 
presidency had done is they were issuing money back to the American people and they were calling it a rebate. And so what do people do with rebates? Well, they they save them. And that's not what we needed to do. We needed people buying big screen TVs and couches and houses and all of this. And so the Obama administration referred to this as a bonus, as a as sort of a one-time bonus. What do you do with your bonus? I mean, you go to the club and pop bottles, right? I mean, you go you go <laughs> you go spend the money, and that's what we needed to get the economy back on its feet. So even something as subtle as how you frame something has a great deal to do with how you spend your money. There's research that's been done that says you ask people could you live on 80% of your income? And almost everyone says yes. If you ask people, could you save 20% of your income? Pretty much everyone says no, which is, you know, silly and nonsensical. But it just shows you that framing something in a positive light has everything to do with your behavior. So you were on to something with your opportunity fund. I think that's a great way to talk about it. The real thing for me just was, the lack of motivation. And I didn't like fear-based tactics. We hear that 70 plus percent of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And we, we hear all these stats and we hear all of these really, quite frankly, gruesome statistics about um, wage gaps and all these different things, but it's still not motivating enough for us to do anything different. And there's got to be more to it. And I'm wondering why behavioral psychology or behavioral investing is still kind of relatively new, right? It's still something that's being unpacked. Like, when do you think we started to really think about this as a discipline? Like, look, this is going beyond us just being able to tell people they need to do this and them doing it. Obviously, they're not doing it. So why is it still something that is so confusing for the average person to get? There's a couple of things uh, to unpack there. I think it started to gain traction when they started to hand out Nobel Prizes for it, right? So they've they've now awarded mm-hmm. a, a couple of Nobel Prizes to people who work in this world of behavioral economics or behavioral finance, which, you know, just by way of a short definition is sort of the intersection of psychology and decision making around money. So once they started to hand out Nobel Prizes, people sort of started uh, to take a closer look and pay attention. But it is, you're right, still in its infancy. Um, But, you know, going back to my comment about needing to bring the heart in, you know, one of my favorite statistics that I share in the book was that low income savers, right, who had traditionally been motivated by fear and this sort of stick mentality, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough. Fear is a very short-term motivator, but then it deteriorates rather quickly, and then there's not much motivation left outside of that very brief moment. And it actually is counter-motivational when people feel like they can't do anything about it. So if you scare someone who has no options, they actually push back and do the opposite of what you want them to do. So in this study, that's my favorite of any study I've ever come across, frankly, They took these low-income savers and they showed them a picture of their children before they made any sort of big financial decision. And when they did this, their savings rates increased 250%. So at this point, they're not motivating by fear anymore. They're motivating with love. And they're letting that goal or that purpose pull them on to more positive financial behaviors. And I think that's the direction we need to go in is involving the heart and the head a little bit more. So are you a fan of people using tools like even vision boards or dream journals or anything that kind of puts a picture, an actual image in front of them as they, not even as they're making a decision necessarily in that moment, but just something to hang around that keeps them, you know, even in the subconscious, just motivated or focused on the big why? Oh, yeah. I I tweeted out a big tweet storm this morning about just the power of purpose. People who say they have a strong purpose in their life, with each standard deviation increase in felt purpose, there's a 15% extension in longevity. Feeling as though you are loved and have purpose is a better predictor of your longevity than your body mass index, which is why my goal is to just be fat but have a lot of friends 
and live a, <laughs> lo- <laughs> and live a really long time. And this purpose also found that people with a strong sense of purpose were two and a half times less likely to get Alzheimer's disease. It was associated with all kinds of positive psychological responses. Purpose to me is, you know, is everything. And having that North Star that sort of tells you what you do spend money and what you don't spend money on uh, is is everything to me. Because you're going to forget about the, you know, the dotting of I's and crossing of T's in a moment of weakness. But if you have that purpose and you can say yes to something bigger than the sort of material things that you have to say no to in a moment, then you're totally on your way. So I'm on the right track then. You know, my tagline is chase purpose, not money. There you go. It's really for me, I always feel like when you are clear on this sense of purpose, then it really helps you set your priorities. And it just helps keep you, again, kind of motivated and, and, you know, you're laser focused on the bigger picture. And I would rather say yes to my purpose than to a purse or to some, you know, object that Lord knows I don't really need. So I love that. Let's see. You mentioned in the book, let me scroll down. I have so many notes. Your book is, <laughs> it is so good. I just think it's it's really great for everyone to read, just for the average person to read, because you make it so easy to understand. When you're from Alabama, that's the only way you know how to do it. That's that's how you have to do it. That's how you have to do it. <laughs> well, one of the things that you talked about, kind of like this set it and forget it. So you were mentioning this study where some of these top performers in the investing world, these clients, I think it was with Fidelity or something like that. Over a period of time, they looked at their portfolios and saw they performed really well. And they asked them like what they did. And I think the number one thing that came out of that was people literally said it and forget it, forgot it. They forgot about those accounts or they forgot about, you know, um, yeah, I guess they just forgot about their accounts. Can you talk about that whole thing with the behavior gap? Because I think that is so critical. And especially like right now where people are on these highs and lows with cryptocurrencies and should I do this and should I do that? And emotions are just running high. Um, and folks are jumping in and out of their investments. And so we know that there's a behavior gap that really doesn't do them too much good if you keep jumping in and out. Can you kind of unpack some of that? Yeah. So let me touch on the Fidelity study real quick because it's just such a fascinating study. You're exactly right. Fidelity looked at all of their retail accounts, so sort of their mom and pop investors, and they said, we're going to try and isolate the variables that are most predictive of you know high returns. What kind of stocks are these people buying? What kind of stuff are they investing in? What sort of behaviors are they exhibiting? Uh, and true enough, like you said, the top two results were that people had either forgotten they had a Fidelity account. So when they when they call them to try and get a hold of them and say, oh, you know, what are you doing that's so brilliant? They go, oh, I, you know, I forgot about that account. <laughs> or, I thought that or, was hilarious. It's hilarious. Or they were dead. That's the other thing. Oh, <laughs> that's the other thing. Not as hilarious, right? No. But yeah, so they had forgotten or they were dead. Like, I mean, there's a lesson in there for investors about what it takes to be great. And it's kind of what's what's so tricky and where the psychology comes in is everywhere else in life, if you want more of something, you you do more, you act more, right? If you want to be stronger, you lift more weights. If you want to be smarter, you read more books. And if you want to be wealthier, you die or you forget about your account. You forget about your account entirely and it doesn't make sense to us. And that's where in the book I refer to Wall Street bizarro world because it's just the the rules of money management and the rules of every day are so divergent from one another. So in terms of the behavior gap, that's the term for the divide between the returns that the market gives us and the returns that the average investor in the market receives. Mm -hmm. And so there's different estimates of this, but the most popular estimate shows that over the last 30 years, the market's returned about eight and a quarter percent annualized. Inflation has been about 3%. And the average investor has realized gains of about 4%. So the average investor, I know math is painful on a podcast, but the average investor, you know, net of inflation is just getting just over 1% a year for a lot of heartache and a lot of headache and a lot of risk. 
because like you said, they're jumping in and jumping out at all the wrong times. And, you know, the difference between 4% return and an 8% return is obviously it's going to double your wealth. Yeah. I mean, it's going to double your terminal wealth if you can just sit tight and ride it out versus jumping in and out and making all of these mistakes. But I love what you said in the book, uh, the goalie reference, when you talked about the goalie during soccer and how it makes sense when you break it down and look at the statistics that the goalie would really just stand in the middle and just <laughs> stand. But instead, we see them when we watch soccer or, you know, football, depending on where you're from. When we watch it on TV, it's like we see them diving to the left or diving to the right and it not necessarily getting them the result that they want. But you explained it so well in the book. It's not about the probability, right, of success. It's about what it looks like. It makes them look like they're doing something. And we tend to do the same thing, right, with money or investing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because like you said, the highest probability of blocking a shot comes from when they stand there and do nothing. But, you know, of course, if the shot sails to their right or left, you feel like an idiot. If you're from certain countries, they'll kill you if you lose the game. So that's another problem. But, yeah, it's the same for investors. We don't want to feel like we're sitting on our hands and doing nothing, even though there's a mountain of research that shows that the highest probability thing you can do is nothing. In fact, there's research by a gentleman named Meyer Statman who looked at 19 different countries, and he found across 19 different countries, the more people trade, the worse they do. So the best thing you can do is just set it and forget it, like you said. Now, women tend to be able to do this much easier than men. Yes. Can you talk women about are, the difference between how men and women invest a little bit? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here because women are much, much better than men. But what's fascinating is that a survey of men and women, only 9% of those surveyed thought that women would be better investors than men. So mm -hmm. women beat men in hedge funds, in mutual funds, and in retail accounts. So funds managed by women, hedge funds managed by women have returned an average of 9.06% a year compared to just 5.82% with the men. Women in retail accounts do about 1% better per year. Single women are the, are the best. Single men are the worst. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so that it, what's fascinating is there's this truth that across basically all professional and non-professional contexts, women are better investors. They have better risk controls. They weight probability better. They're more patient. They do everything better than men. And no one believes it, not even, not even women. And so I'm kind of on this mission, you know, help people own what they're good at because women exhibit a lot of talent in this world. And yet they make up only about 2% of assets managed and only about 9% of asset managers and only about 30% of financial advisors. So ladies, if you're listening, there is a great world of work out there for you in finance. You're great at this on average and don't get enough credit. What is that about? Do you think that just has to do with like old school gender roles? Just women assuming because I'm a woman, I know less? Because men have delusions of grandeur, like they can know nothing and think that they know everything. I don't know how you all do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me explain it to you. No, just kidding. So, the, <laughs> the, you know, it's fascinating as you see this. I think Google did a, a survey recently that found that women would not ask for a promotion mm -hmm. uh, until, you know, you look at a, a job. I haven't applied for a job in so long. What do you call them? Like a, a job requisition, right? Mm -hmm. Like a job application. You look at the skills you need and women will not apply until they can check every single box. Men will apply when they can check half or fewer of the boxes. And so, yeah, men are overconfident. And it's one of the reasons why they make crummy traders and crummy, crummy investors. But, you know, back to the this gap, this confidence gap with women, it's absolutely, I think, just old school socialization and, and gender roles. You know, yeah. even if you look at girls' math scores relative to boys, it's a dead heat up until middle school when I think girls start to be socialized away from uh, STEM careers and socialized into sort of helping professions and softer skill type stuff. Mm -hmm. 
And then those scores diverge. And it's not because, you know, it's not because they are any worse at it. It's just because they've been socialized away from it. So, you know, podcasts like yours have a have a job to do in kind of setting the record straight. Mm, That's good. Okay, so I want to go through some of your laws of wealth. There's a couple that really stood out to me while they're all great. But one of the ones that I love is that you cannot do this alone. And people ask me all the time about whether I have a financial advisor, which I always think is so funny. I think it's a great question, but it always kind of makes me chuckle. And I often ask, like, what would make you think that I didn't? (laughs) You know, like, what would make you assume that I didn't? You know, I'm confident in the things that I do know, but I'm also confident in the fact that I don't know what I don't know. And I love that you talk about how financial advisors are really kind of, what do you call them? Behavioral coaches more than anything. Can you talk about that? And and do you have a financial advisor? I would love to know because you're so well-versed in so many areas. I do have a financial advisor. And so I am a financial advisor. So I'm a, you know, I'm licensed to be a financial advisor and I work with a financial advisor. And so I think that tells you everything you need to know. I mean, I've written, I've I've written three books on how to invest. You know, I have my own firm and I work with an outside partner to make sure because I know that getting good returns is less about what you know, because I have all the book knowledge of how to do this that I would ever need, but you're stupid with your own money. And, (laughs) you know, that's, it's different. I mean, it's, it's like being in love. You can give your friends good, good relationship, good dating advice all day long. And then when it comes to the person that you, you know, you're smitten with, you break all the rules and do everything wrong. And it's the same with money. I don't have an advisor Uh, Because I don't know how to allocate assets or pick stocks or what I should do. I have an advisor to talk me off the ledge, (laughs) even though I'm a psychologist and a financial advisor. I know what I don't know. And I realize that the best use of an advisor is not to crank up your returns or pick stocks, but to hold your hand. And I cite in that second chapter, uh, the You Cannot Do This Alone chapter, I cite a, a bevy of research that talks about how people who work with advisors get on average about 3% better a year returns, mm-hmm. which doesn't sound like a lot. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it will. it is enormous. Yeah. Over an investment lifetime, it'll again just about double your wealth. That's why I work with an advisor, because I know that I'm, I'm crazy and flawed deep down. <laughs> As we all are, right? And I, I love that's you right. in that section you talked about, you might be perfectly capable of mowing your lawn or cleaning your own home or painting a room, but it's still more wise to hire those things out if that's what you need to do, right? For me, it is peace of mind. There is a peace of mind knowing that there's someone to, as you said, hold our hand, my husband and I, and, you know, sit down with us sometimes quarterly, but mostly every six months or so and just kind of go over things and talk about life. And here's where we are now. And this is where our goals are shifting. And here's what's a concern now that our parents are aging. And here's what's whatever. There's a peace of mind that comes with that. Yeah, there absolutely is. And I think that What's interesting is a survey done by Natixis found that 86% of financial advisors say that the biggest value that they add is handholding. So we as an industry are starting to understand the power of behavioral coaching. But when they talked to the clients of those advisors, just 6% said that behavioral coaching was a big value add. So there's still this big gap where people think what they're getting is sort of this junior Warren Buffett type, you know, gene, you know, math genius, stock picking genius. And the best use of a financial advisor is just to frankly save you from yourself. Wow. Yeah. I knew I needed saving. I'm all for it. Another law that I really enjoyed was you are not special. Everybody wants to be special though. We want to be that pink elephant, right? Or the, like we want to be different. Can you talk about that rule about you're not special? Yeah. So you're not special. Being a good investor means sort of disabusing yourself of this notion that the rules don't apply to you. And this is something that we all do. You know, just like you said, 
we all think that a lot of this stuff is for other people. And so what we tend to do is we tend to own the optimistic and we tend to delegate the dangerous. When you when you look at studies, you ask people, you know, how likely are you to win the lottery? And people go, yeah, you know, pretty likely. <laughs> and they say, you know, how likely how likely are you to get divorced or, you know, die of cancer or something like this? And they go, oh, well, you know, no. I mean, I know 50% of marriages end in divorce, but, you know, mine never will. And so we do this throughout life. And frankly, it's nice that we do. If we didn't have this overconfidence, you know, no one would ever get married. <laughs> no, if, if we knew the odds, really, no one would ever get married. Like no one would have kids and no one would start a business and no one would start a restaurant because it's all, you know, the odds are bad. <laughs> so it helps us elsewhere in life, but we really have to not bring it to the table when investing. After that FinCon that I spoke at, a gentleman came up to me and he had about a $2 million portfolio. And he said, you know, hey, half of this I've got well diversified and half of it I have in Apple stock. And I said, sir, that's super dumb. <laughs> you know, why, why are you doing this? And he goes, well, what do you think about Apple? What do you think about the prospects for Apple in the years to come? And I said, look, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what I think. And it doesn't even matter what Apple does. Because the thing about investing is you can be right and still be a moron. And that's what people sort of have to realize that even if, if 50% of your wealth is in one stock, and that stock goes to the moon, you were still stupid. Like it was still the wrong decision mm -hmm. um, because over long periods of time, you win by playing by the rules. And so that's a hard thing to figure out, to get people to understand is that as an investor, you need to be process driven and not results driven because you can get the right results for the wrong reason. And that tends to turn on its head over time. You know, get get rich quick and get poor quick tend to be sides of the same coin. Right. Oh, that's really good. You can get results for the wrong reason and then in the long run play yourself because you try that again. Yeah. <laughs> with something else and get a completely different result and lose your shirt. That's exactly right. Mm, that's really good. Here's one of my favorites. Your life is the best benchmark. And I love this because I am the queen of encouraging people not to compare themselves to really much of anything. <laughs> like, you know, doing what works for you, like being really aware and clear about what your goals are and what matters to your family and what matters for you and your future. And I loved your life is the best benchmark because essentially it's about personalizing this thing and making it about what matters to you as opposed to trying to outperform these people or whatever that you don't even understand or you can't even really pinpoint instead of really just focusing on what you need or what you want. Can you talk about that one? I mean, it's basically your tagline, right? I mean, it's basically your tagline around chasing purpose and not money because that's what that chapter is all about. So a friend of mine here in Atlanta named Dr. Sarah Falaw, her dad wrote The Millionaire Next Door, which is sort of this, yeah, like, you know, seminal book on personal finance, like best ever. Um, and so she is a doctor of uh, organizational psychology. She's carrying on his research. And one of the things that they look at is the sort of behaviors in people that, that cause them to build wealth over time. And one of the things that they look at is social comparison, because they found that people who basically have to keep up with the Joneses are not well positioned to build wealth over time. And so uh, there's a lot of things you can do there. In fact, just surround yourself with surround yourself with people who are living within their means. And there's a lot that you can do there to help manage that need to manage impressions that need to be Instagram fabulous all the time, uh, that need to keep up with people. So that's something we all have to learn to do is to run our own race. And it's very, very hard to do, I think, especially in social media culture, where it always looks like other people have more and are doing more and, and are better people when they're just feeding us a highlight reel of their lives. Right. Right. Hmm. Do you really think, though, I know with basic personal finance, this is 
probably very true, right, with how we manage our day-to-day financial affairs. But do you think that social media also plays a role in how people invest? Do people even really talk about what they're investing in or just investing in general when you think about social media? That's a great question. I think stuff like cryptocurrency has been fueled broadly by social media. I think sort of more bread and butter investment, you know, stocks and bonds and things. I don't think people talk much about that. But I think on the personal finance front, like you said, I think we're greatly influenced. I mean, we're, we're led into people's homes now in a way that we weren't before and, and their cars and, you know, these sorts of things. And we just have more access to what people's lives look like. And we benchmark to other people. And it's a shame because it leads us down some bad paths, I think. Yeah, I agree. I am so sick of (laughs) the sponsored posts where there's some guy walking through his garage and walking through his whole house into the back. It's like, what was the point of this again? Because we've spent three minutes with you just kind of trying to flash but it's amazing. And and these are the same guys, I'm not naming any, but these are the same guys that have millions of followers and people are so caught up in that. Then, I mean, to your point, if they started talking about, oh, I'm investing in X, Y, and Z, people would probably just do it because they said so. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of these guys who will remain unnamed now <laughs> now have investing podcasts about you know real estate and cryptocurrency and other things so you're you're absolutely right you know one of the things that i talk about as a hallmark of all investment bubbles is conflating wealth with intelligence there's this attitude in this country that if you're rich you must be smart and that's Hardly the case, as I think prominent people in the news are showing us every day. <laughs> you can be <laughs> you can be very, very rich and very, very stupid, and even more importantly, a very terrible person. And Daniel, uh, it's coming back to me why I really liked you. <laughs> yes. I never make the mistake of conflating wealth and intelligence. You don't know someone's background, what you know, sort of advantages they had in life. You know, you don't really know how they're living. I get insights into people's lives all the time by by virtue of my work, and I'm, I'm sure you do too. And you go, wow, on Instagram, based on your Facebook feed, I thought you were making 300 grand a year and mm-hmm. living the dream. And now I see it's far from that. Yeah. So You would be surprised at the number of people who actually reach out to me for help that are like, I don't know, pseudo celebrities, if you will. They have a bit of a following and stuff. And I've talked to some of these women in particular. I've talked to some of these young ladies. And again, on social media, it looks like they're living the life, but they're living downtown in a high rise with no furniture and they're barely paying that rent. <laughs> There's no furniture. It's, they didn't opt for a minimalistic, you know, look. They just they don't even have money <laughs> to furnish these places, but they're driving the fancy cars and there are all the red carpets and They're doing all this stuff and it's like, wow. And then I see the young women who are drooling over what they appear to have on social media. And it just breaks my heart. It really does. It's it's so sad. I shake my head all the time (laughs) because you're right. People confuse this appearance even of having money with intelligence. And then you let people just steer you down the worst path you could possibly go down because they're pulling out, I don't know, these gems of wisdom out their butts and you're just following it because they look good on social media and it's so sad. How do people really, Daniel, though, kind of steer away from that? Or is it just, is it going back to you having that strong sense of purpose? So you're not even, you know, moved by the things that you see out there. You're just kind of running your own race. Yeah. I think a strong sense of purpose is paramount. You know, another thing that I try and do, I'm a shrink by education. I'm a clinical psychologist by education. And my, you know, one of my first ever jobs was working in an eating disorder clinic. And one of the things that we did with the young ladies at this, at this eating disorders clinic was one of the first things we would do is teach them to be an informed consumer of media. You know, we'd teach them to question these sort of hyper perfectionistic, airbrushed, unrealistic images of female beauty 
And to understand the financial motivation behind that, understand kind of what went into creating those images so that they could be not cynical, but so they could be a more informed consumer of that media. I think we absolutely have to do that with social media, with the financial news media and just the media more broadly is to say, okay, why are people, why am I getting this highly curated, idealistic look into this person's life? Is it, is it really that good? Or am I just seeing the, the high points, the highlight reel? And then finally, I think, um, you know, where possible, we just need to abstain. I mean, I quit Facebook mercifully right before the election. Um, and, and it was like an immediate 25% boost in my <laughs> happiness. Like I, you know, it, I, it, it was, I mean, it was just like, I'm not fighting with some random from high school about whatever. And, you know, it's just, it was something I spent so much time and energy on that was adding nothing to my life. So I think you have to do sort of an audit of your life and say, are these things getting me to where I want to be yeah. uh, or, or not? I actually have done the same thing. I've learned to take little social media breaks and I've also unfollowed people on like Instagram and Twitter. Even if I like them, I've unfollowed them because I sometimes with different people, I would just find myself being way too interested in what they had going on, you know? You know, it's like you yeah. go down this spiral. It's like, oh, she went on a vacation. Let me see if there are other pictures. Oh, I wanted to go to Bora Bora. Why didn't my husband? My husband told me he was going to take me to Bora Bora. Now, whatever happened to that? Like, I find myself going down this like little path of no return. And before you know it, 45 minutes has gone by. And now I'm mad at my husband for something that he didn't even know <laughs> what happened. We were just fine <laughs> an hour ago, you know? And I found myself, I told a girlfriend of mine at one point, I said, I have learned that I have to do my job to preserve my peace. Like I cannot let myself, no matter how much I like someone, genuinely, I really like them in person or I've met them in person and I was impressed with them or whatever. No matter how much I may like them, especially people I don't really care for, I just unfollow. There's no sense in getting riled up every time I see anything, which always amazes me, by the way, people who don't like someone, but they follow them anyway and then comment on everything just to raise their own blood pressure. But I've unfollowed those folks, but I've also unfollowed people that Put me in any space of possibly comparing anything about my life or my goals or what I have going on. And every time I do that, it is such a great way just to get back in alignment with what matters to me running my own race and chasing my own purpose. Yeah, that's an incredible way to, to go about it. Don't give rent to anyone in your head that's going to make your, your life worse. And I've had the same experience. Very nice, good people who are doing nothing wrong, but because I am who I am and I'm a, you know, a competitive, whatever, petty person, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm upset by whatever they're posting. And if that's the case, that's the case. And, you know, manage it accordingly and know yourself. So, Daniel, what are some just kind of final things thoughts around how we can get our minds right so that we can be the best investors possible, especially for many people who are in my audience who are just now kind of getting their feet wet and they want to get into investing, but they've been nervous, especially for women who believe for whatever reason that they're not necessarily groomed to invest on their own or to sit down with a financial advisor on their own. Like what are just some real takeaways that can just help all of us based on the laws of wealth. Yeah, I'll take you back to the very first chapter because I was quite intentional about the way that I laid out these chapters. And the first is you control what matters most. So I think beginning investors and sort of financial novices think that the best predictor of whether or not I reach my financial goals is uh, you know, can I make a ton of money? Can I pick great stocks? Can I choose an advisor that can choose great stocks? And I would tell you uh, that your behavior is what matters most. And the best predictor of you getting across that personal finish line of yours is your ability to do the least sexy, most boring pieces of saving monthly, managing your expenses, running your own race, investing in a cheap and well-diversified way and your ability to do these things and stay the course and not fall prey to some of these behavioral traps is such a better predictor than 
any sort of financial acumen or know-how. You know, I give the example in the book of the best performing mutual fund of the 2000 to 2010 period. It was a focused equity, so like a focused stock fund, and it did 18% a year, which is absolutely gangbusters. I mean, it's absolutely shoot the lights out performance. And the average investor in that fund had a realized return of negative 11% because the fund would run up, everyone would get excited and pile in, it would go down for a while, everyone would jump out, it would run up again and everyone would pile in again. So your ability to pick great stocks or great mutual funds is so much less important than your ability to just manage the voices in your own head. And so I hope that's what people will take away from, that's from good. our conversation manage the today. the voices in your own head. Yeah. And I loved another one. I think it was, um, it's something like, if you're excited, <laughs> then don't do it. Yeah. If you're excited, it's a bad idea. <laughs> You guys got to get the laws of wealth. It's actually really, really good and great for those of you who like information in terms you can understand. I just have to keep stressing that, that I loved how you broke it down. Just common sense. I was reading it to my husband uh, quite a few chapters. And let me tell you, if he got it, then everyone's good. Like he totally <laughs> got the story because, <laughs> you know, this is more my thing. It's just not his thing. So sometimes I nerd out and read him things yeah. and he's like, what? What are you even talking about? But the, when I was reading different examples from your book, he really enjoyed it. So I appreciate how you break it down. So before I let you get out of here, Daniel, I have to ask you um, some rapid wisdom questions that we do really quickly at the end of every episode. So I'm going to ask you some stuff and just tell us the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Love it. Okay. The first one is how do you define success? A happy family. I love it. And you're married with three children. That's right. Awesome. All right. How do you define wealth in three words or less? Oh, three words or less. Fulfilling my purpose. Dude, Daniel, you're like my brother. I think we're long lost <laughs> siblings. I love that. I love it. I love it. Okay. What's one book that has redefined how you see wealth? Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's the story of an Austrian psychiatrist who's a Holocaust survivor. And it talks again all about meaning and purpose and how having this sort of professional North Star can see you through the most unspeakably horrible of times. So Man's Search for Meaning should be required reading for entrance into the human family. So I hope everyone will go check it out. Absolutely. I'm going to link to that. Thank you. I'm definitely going to check it out. And then fill in this blank. My name is, and for me, the truth about wealth is. My name is Daniel Crosby. And the truth about wealth is it won't make you as happy as you think. Oh, that's good. That's good. And how long have you been married? Brutal, but the research <laughs> is true. Yeah. How long have I been married? 12, uh, 12 years next month. Well, happy anniversary in advance. Thank you. 12 years next. So, you know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that you could you can have money, you can have wealth, you can have all the material possessions. But when your family life and your relationships are not intact, like what good is it? Here's a nerd nerdy phrase for you. Money is what psychologists refer to as a hygiene factor. Which basically, like if you don't have enough, you're miserable. I mean, you know, not having enough money to eat or keep yourself dry or warm is, you know, misery inducing. But past a certain point, it just doesn't do anything. I mean, it just doesn't make you any happier once you've covered sort of those basics at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy there. So use it for what it's good for, which is, you know, keep keeping fed and warm and dry and then focus on stuff that matters much more. I love that, Daniel. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. It's been great. Okay, you guys, didn't I tell you that Daniel would be fantastic? Now, I know this was some time back in the episode, but I cannot stop laughing. Did he call himself petty? Did anybody else hear him call himself petty? This is my brother. You don't understand. <laughs> I really enjoyed this interview. I had a great time with Daniel, and I hope that you really got some great jewels out of this episode. One of the things that I want you to take away is that it's okay to get professional help. 
You do not have to do this alone. And I love, again, the data that suggests that when you work with financial advisors, you do end up making more money in the long term because we need people to help us protect our emotions when it comes to our money. And especially when we're not sure and we're just doing all this in and out of the market and going back and forth, we really ruin it for ourselves in the long term. So I love that Daniel talked about that. And also, my ladies, did you hear that we are great at finances? Don't let anyone tell you otherwise, right? As I said, I think men have delusions of grandeur. Now, you know I love y'all. I love my men that listen. (laughs) But I am gearing up for Women's Equal Pay Day, which is a very real topic for me. And if you don't know what Equal Pay Day is, it is the day in the calendar years. This year takes place April 10th where women will finally make what their male counterparts made by December 31st, the previous year. So that means we're technically working like three months and a few weeks for free. That's what it feels like. That's what it looks like. And a few years ago, I launched the Earn More Money Movement for Women to help take women through 20 principles that have helped me earn more in my career. It's totally free and it's coming soon. And so for the month of April, I will be dedicating that month to interviewing women who are paving the way for us to bridge that gap. And I'll also be giving you more details about how you can get in on this free challenge. I've had tens of thousands of women do it with me over the last few years, and it is truly a life-changing experience. And I hope that my podcast community will join us in support as well. So get ready for that. It's coming soon. And next week's episode is going to be another solo thought. It's going to be a good one. It's called Bless Thy Enemy. I'll let you marinate on what you think that's about. But until next time, family, I appreciate you guys so much. Please make sure that you subscribe, that you share, that you rate and review this episode. Make sure you reach out to me in social media. I would love to be connected with you there all through the week. And I will see you back here next Thursday, okay? Until next time, I want you to go live your life's purpose, find fulfillment, and earn more without ever chasing money. Talk to you later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.